the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for streets, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If this is the first time you heard the show, hey, welcome aboard. Uh, the show isn't, we talk, the first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, usually, as you know, we start with one of our attorneys discussing these estate planning questions. And with us right now, we have Mel, Mel Jose. Welcome welcome back to the show, Mel. It's good to be back. Hi, everyone. Now, what questions have you come across lately that we've been emailed or well, people have asked you? Well, yesterday I was in the middle of a closing and a client called me. And um, basically, he wants to help his daughter, who's in law school right now. And he was thinking of gifting the dollar around three hundred, four hundred thousand. And he basically the question was: Is he going to pay gift tax? Is there a gift tax over sixteen thousand? He's giving three hundred, four hundred. Well, seventeen 000. now. Yeah, it's index yeah, for inflation. Yeah. Uh, probably not. I mean, it all depends. If he's given twelve million nine hundred thousand before today, yes, then he's paying a gift tax. But there's no gift tax due until your lifetime gifts exceed $12,900,000. So it's unlikely um, that he's going to pay gift tax. Now, here there's, there's some other things, too, though, that maybe we should touch upon. If he pays the tuition directly to the school, that's not a gift. So, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, the, the daughter had a $40,000 tuition bill. If you wrote a check for $40,000 to the daughter's school, in payment of tuition bill, that's not a gift. That's paying for education, both for Medicaid purposes and for IRS purposes. Otherwise, every almost every parent whose child was going to school was writing tuition checks would be filing gift tax returns. As long as the money goes directly to the school. The, the money should go directly to the school. Now, I've, I've been there with Medicaid where 
we had a hearing where the, the check went to the, in this case, it was grandparents to granddaughter, and the, the check went to the, you know, the parents, and the parents then paid the tuition bill for the granddaughter, and they accepted it at a fair hearing. But the, the cleanest way to do it, you make the check directly to the school, and then there's no question it's not a gift and we don't have to file a return. I think I came across this question before. What about if they pay directly to the student loan, to the lender? Does that count? In my mind, that's a gift because you're reducing somebody's indebtedness. You know, so that that would be a gift. You're not paying for education. I know it's, it's a very – Medicaid, I would probably argue it and we might get away. The IRS, I don't think, would let us get away with that. But, you know, again, are they going to have more than $12.9 million in gifts? And remember, that's twelve for a husband and wife. That's twelve million nine hundred thousand dollars for a husband, twelve million nine hundred thousand dollars for wife. So unless they're giving away more than twenty six million dollars, we're not going to get into a gift tax. Um, you know, or, or you could do it like the Bidens and say it was a loan. And well, I mean, that's what he did. Um, he said the guy who paid his income taxes for one point two million loaned him the money, and so they said it wasn't a gift, so he didn't have to file a gift tax return on it. So if somebody just loans you $1.2 million to pay your income taxes, well, okay, say it's a loan, never pay it back. Just be very careful if the daughter's buying a house, though. Just yeah. Look at that. Well, if the daughter's buying a house, again, as far as Medicaid is concerned, if there's a legitimate reason for the gift that's besides just, in their mind, gifts are assumed to qualify for Medicaid unless there's a reason not to. And if you're buying a house and you give your daughter money to buy a house and then you go to a nursing home, you can get away with saying that that, well, not get away with it, but argue that it was for buying the, you know, the house. And hopefully the checks are close to the closing and you can, you know, escape that penalty that might hit you. Because if you apply for nursing home Medicaid, every transaction that you involved more than $3,000 for five years prior to your application is scrutinized by Medicaid and there are exceptions all over the place. But the, you know, if you can clearly show that the money was used to buy a house, then it's not used to qualify for Medicaid. And that's one of the things that, you know, we have an opportunity to do in those cases. So, you know, you got to be a little careful, you know, because a lot of problems, a lot of times the problem is not necessarily with the IRS in making the gifts, the problem is with Medicaid. Because let's say we got a husband and wife, they got a hundred grand extra floating around their house. And, you know, their accountant says, Well, you know, you you, you have this hundred thousand dollars, you're not using it. You just got it from some sale of something you didn't expect to sell. Why don't why don't you give the, the money to your you know, your children? grandchildren, whatever, and let's say there's six people in the family, we do six into seven, six, six times 16 would be $96,000. We give them $96,000. We don't have to file a gift tax return. We don't have to do anything. But let's say it's a husband and wife. Husband has a stroke. He has to go to the nursing home. Medicaid's going to say, hey, you just made a $96,000 gift. Uh, you're not eligible for nursing home Medicaid. And basically, there would be a penalty on that of roughly eight months. 
So let's say the husband goes to a nursing home. The wife cannot apply for nursing home Medicaid for eight months, which if she's paying fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a month to the nursing home, that ninety-six thousand dollar gift cost her maybe one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in real money. So you got to be very careful about making gifts as far as Medicaid is concerned. The IRS is not a problem unless you got more than twelve million nine hundred thousand in gifts, and very few people are doing that. Even people who were twenty-five million aren't making $25 million worth of gifts. You know, people who, who have that type of money are usually reluctant to make gifts anyway. Um, so you got you got to be careful as far as Medicaid uh, making the gifts. And, you know, before you do it, get the right advice. <laughs> and, of course, New York State, New York State, if you die within three years of the gift, they throw that gift back into your state, what they call clawback. So in other words, if somebody has, let's say, a $7 million state in New York, and they read in New York that if you have a $6.5 million uh, estate, you don't pay taxes. So somebody goes, and they're a New York state resident, they give $500,000 away, bang, do the gift, file the gift tax return, which if you give away more than $17,000 to one person, you should file a return. So they file a return, $500,000 gift, they die in less than three years. New York State brings that $500,000 gift back into the estate. So if they had a $6.5 million estate and then they end up with a $7 million estate, the children are going to have to pay uh, $700,000 in taxes. So that's not necessarily a good result. Now, that's why a lot of people do move to Florida, because if you die with a $7 million estate as a New York resident, you're going to owe, your kids are going to owe $700,000 in estate taxes. If you die with a $7 million estate in Florida, your children pay zero taxes. And that's why a lot of people with money are moving to Florida. I mean, you know, do you want your kids to pay $700,000 in taxes? And of course, one of the things we, you know, some people think, well, I'll buy a, you know, a winter house in Florida and I say I'll live there. It's not quite that simple. You got to really live there. And if you're going back and forth, you should spend more than half the year in Florida to be a Florida resident. And, you know, so how do they know? Believe me right now, they know everything. Your GPS, you know, there's a GPS in your phone. They can tell you where you are 365 days a year. You make a phone call. They know where you made the phone call from. Somebody gives you a phone call. They know where you received the phone call. They know where you make your credit card purchases. They know if you're in Florida, they know what you're paying in air conditioning bills. So if it was 90 degrees that month on average in Florida and you didn't use your air conditioner, they know you weren't there. There's so many things. I mean, people say, well, I'll drive back and forth. I won't use credit cards. Uh, I'll pay cash for my gas, stay in a hotel for, for cash or whatever. Believe me, if you're moving back and forth, they can tell you where you are. There are just too many things out there. You go through the easy pass lane. You know, in, in Brooklyn, in your car. And, yeah, you can say somebody else buy my car. In some cases, they can get the picture of you. You know, I, I mean, it depends how much they are, to, how hard they are to try to get you. But if you drive in New York, if you drive, let's say, from the Verrazano Bridge to the Flatbush Avenue Bridge, they have your picture 10 times. Now, sometimes you might just have the car, but in one of those pictures, they may have your face behind the wheel. So... In today's world, you can't count on getting away with it. You know, it's not like the 1950s where you could do almost anything and nobody would catch up with you. If you don't live in Florida, do not say you live in Florida. You know, play it straight.
Don't get in trouble. Yes, we want to avoid those taxes, but let's not play games. Um, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few more minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by Mel Jose. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to Mel here about, you know, making gifts and and. You know, Mel, you do mostly in real estate. You deal mostly in real estate here. But go go ahead with the question you just mentioned. This is this is this is very relevant. Connected to the on the, by the way, the, the explanation about uh, this the state tax is very is very useful. But along that line, I had a client call me said, "I want to gift my house to my children. What's the best way to do it so they don't get hit with taxes when they sell it in the future?" Yeah, well, the best way is usually almost always through a trust agreement. There might be an exception through the rule every once in a while. And I'll go through that exception in a couple of minutes. Um, but with the trust agreement, you put the house in trust agreement. Your children receive the house a few days after you're gone with a death certificate. There's no court proceeding. There's no probate. Again, if you live in New York and you're under $6.5 million, there's no death taxes, there's no estate death taxes, inheritance taxes, and capital gains are wiped out by death under current law. Capital gains are wiped out by death. So let's say you paid $50,000 for your house 
in whatever, 1980, your house is worth $2 million on the day you pass away in the near future. Um, your children sell the house for $2 million. Assuming your total estate is under $6.5 million, the children don't pay any taxes at all. They go to the closing. They collect $2 million after the closing costs and the fees associated with the closing. They're going to put $2 million in their pocket. So that's usually the best way to do it. Now, there's so many things that can go wrong if you just put your son or daughter's name on the deed. You know, like, and I'm not even talking about the the really weird stories like somebody gives their house to their kids and then the kids throw them out of the house a few years later. I mean, that doesn't happen, but I can tell you what does happen. You give your son your house and you think nothing's going to happen. You put his name on the deed. He dies and then his wife gets the house because he doesn't do any planning properly. And then the wife gets remarried a few years later and say, hey, get out. This is my house. You you put my my husband's name on the deed. He died. I was his sole heir. I own the house now. Get out. And that happens. And there are other things that can happen. You, you could have a reliable son who gets in a car accident. He gets sued. His insurance doesn't cover everything from the lawsuit. And next thing you know, the people who sue him have a judgment against him. They have a judgment against your house because you put your son's name on the deed. Um, you have a problem with the IRS. Your your daughter has a problem with the IRS. The IRS puts a lien on her assets. You put your daughter's name on your deed. And hold apart, joint tenants with right of survivorship, um, whatever. The IRS has a lien on your house, and you can't change your deed without the IRS knowing it, because the IRS agent in charge of the file can look at the systems on ACRIS. Mel, you may want to explain that. What is ACRIS? So so basically, back in the day, <laughs> you have to be in possession of the deed uh, for as long as you have to, to prove your ownership. Right now, what we do, I don't know, was it in the 80s, 70s? Or, um, so basically, all the deeds right now are recorded with the city, and we can check it. Even if you lost the original deed, the one that's recorded with the city will, you know, will work, will be accepted. And when you decide to sell, the title company who's basically giving the buyer the title insurance is going to look at that deed on the record and say, hey, yeah, the seller is the seller. They own the property. That's what the accuracy yeah. is. Yeah, and that, that, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, your original deed is not that important anymore. There were some sections, we used to have what we call the torrent system, where if you lost the original deed, it was a hassle. You had to go to court and get another deed reissued. Um, and that was a hassle, but that's long gone in New York. So basically, the deed's recorded when you buy your house. It's listed in the city computer system. Anybody, good or bad, anybody can go on that system and check out the deed to your house. Which good, if you lose your deed, it means very, very little. It means nothing because your deed's on record. Somebody can check on the city ACRA system and see who's the registered owner of your house. The bad thing is sometimes people don't like it because they think their privacy is invaded because you find out your brother-in-law's on your house or something like that or you put one of your kids on your house and then the other kids can find out or you do a trust and you have one of your kids as trustees. 
and then the two other kids can can look at the city record and see you name what kid you named as trustee. <laughs> so there's no privacy in who owns your house anymore. That that I guess is the bad part. But even 50 years ago, there was no privacy. Somebody could go to downtown Brooklyn, if you're assuming you lived in Brooklyn, and check the city records by hand. It's just right now, it's so easy. Much easier. You just check it. You can just check it by going on the computer. Uh, but again, losing your original deed is no problem. Also, let's say if you have a deed to the house, husband and wife, husband dies. Let's say the wife intends to sell the house in a short period of time. Well, she doesn't have to change the deed. There's no problem with that. She can go to a closing with a copy of the husband's death certificate, assuming they weren't divorced. But she can go to the closing with a copy of her husband's death certificate and sell the house without a problem. So, you know, again, husband and wife, husband dies. Wife can sell the house with no problem. Assuming the deed said husband and wife or married couple or somehow was indicated that they were married at the time that they purchased the house. So... um the original deed is not as important as it used to be. Now, I did say that for the most part, if, you know, switching the house over, I would do it through a trust agreement with a few exceptions. What would be one of the exceptions? Well, let's say we had a mother-daughter. Daughter's single. She's lived in the same house with mom for years. And they're thinking about selling the house in the near future. Well, if mom makes the daughter co-owner on the house, and she does that for two years, then we can get another $250,000 tax-free. If you sell your personal residence, you get $250,000 tax-free, assuming you lived and owned in the property for more than two years. So let's say we had a mother-daughter, mother's 90, daughter's 60, mom wants to sell the house, move to Florida. They're going to wait two years we might put the daughter's name on the deed, assuming the single and not a lot of complications from other factors. We might put the, the deed in daughter's name in part, and she would pick up $250,000. And so, in other words, let's say your your basis in the house was $400,000 from the husband's death, and you're going to sell it for eight hundred. Well, if you have two owners that sell, and, and when they, some people think it's husband and wife that have to sell two hundred fifty to get to $250,000 each. No, it could be brother or sister, it could be mother, daughter, any combination of owners, you get another $250,000 tax-free for each owner who lives in the property and it's their primary residence and they've owned it for more than two years. I think it's also good to add. So in that case, mother, daughter, lived there more than two years. The daughter is married. Husband's name is not on the deed. Would she be able to get all the additional 250 for the husband? Yes, assuming they would. jointly filed? The name does the, the, you know, let's say, let's say you inherited a house from your parents. You're married. Your spouse's name is not on the deed. But you sell the house, you file a joint tax return, you can take the 500,000 exclusion. The spouse, your spouse's name does not have to be on the deed. People ask, you know, usually it's when somebody's inherited a house. They inherited a house from their parents. They never changed the deed. Um, they're married. Should I change the deed, put my husband's name on the deed? Well, if you're going to sell in the near future, no. Now, you may want to do it because, and some people don't realize this. Let's say you bought a house, you inherited a house from your parents 20 years ago. You have a couple of kids. You're married a long time with your husband. You die. And even if you have a will leaving the house to your husband, He's got to go to probate to sell that house. And if one of the kids doesn't cooperate 
that could be a problem. That could easily store you two to three years. And not every family gets along. And uh, obviously, you could be talking about a second marriage, something like that. But, you know, even between husband and wife, we want to avoid probate. Okay, I think it's time for us to take another break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You'll listen to Mike Connors on Ask the Lawyer. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Welcome back to Ask Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're continuing our conversation with Mel. Mel, do we have any questions that were sent to us by clients through email or otherwise? I do. Okay. We do. Uh, this question is from Otis. Uh, my mom has huge credit card bills. Will I be responsible to pay my mother's credit card bills when she dies? Well, assuming you didn't co-sign on the, the credit card bills, no. Now, here's one thing you should keep in mind. Um, that's one of the reasons to avoid probate in some cases, uh, because if you have credit card bills, the banks or whatever companies that issued those credit cards can put a claim in against the estate if you go through probate. So let's say you have $20,000 worth of credit card bills and maybe you had a house and maybe you got the house as a reverse mortgage. Obviously, you weren't doing too well and you got a reverse mortgage on the house. And on top of paying back the reverse mortgage, then you're going through probate. Then the credit card companies put a lien on your estate, put a claim in against your estate. And not only you got to pay the reverse mortgage and the interest that's building up on that, but you got the credit card companies with the interest on on those bills. So if you avoid probate, now I don't want to necessarily say, hey, let's go out and stiff the credit card companies. But at the same time, you know, we we want to do the best we can for our clients. You know, the credit cards, if they don't have an estate to put a claim against, they're kind of like out there because it's too hard for a credit card company to sue if they have to sue somebody who doesn't have a legal estate. And you avoid having a legal estate is if when you pass away, there are no assets in your name alone when you pass away, which the type of assets that usually get up end up, if you're planning, that sometimes people forget about. Maybe you have a small checking account. That could be part of your estate. But... That's why your real estate, you don't want your house to be a sitting duck for those type of bills. You want to avoid probate on, you know, on your real estate so it's not a sitting duck for nursing home bills because no matter how much you own in real estate, it's going to be more than enough to pay the credit card bills. So if you own real estate, you don't want to go through probate. And that's why we talked about the trust agreement earlier. And I can't stress that enough. And then, you know, maybe we don't pay the credit card bills. And we go from there. And this, the same thing happens if you have huge medical bills or whatever. 
Medical providers are very good at looking at probated estates. They have computer programs to pick it up. They see there's a, an estate going through probate. They see that the person who died owes the money. And sometimes, you know, if you're involved with somebody who's been in the hospital and they get some of these statements, this is a bill, this is not a bill, whatever. It's very confusing. And, and sometimes you can't figure it out. And the, and the cost of your last illness sometimes can be astronomical. And if you don't want to have to sort that out, you don't want to go through probate and just let the medical providers deal with the insurance companies and sort it out and don't get you caught too much in the middle if we don't have an estate. So that's another reason to avoid probate, and I can't stress that enough. we got one more question, Mel, that we can go through. From, also from Otis, um, my mom had a will. Where is the best place to keep your will? I wish I could answer that. <laughs> um, but I don't think there is one right answer. The, the right answer is in a safe place. But what's a safe place? I mean, there were wills. If you asked me on the day before September 11th, is the basement of the World Trade Center a safe place? I would have said, yeah. You know what? What's going to happen where the – and obviously we know what happened. Um, you can put it in a safe deposit box in a bank. Safe deposit boxes can be robbed. That happens more than you might think. Banks don't like to publicize it, but it does happen. And, you know, it's not we'll – say, well, if they rob my safe deposit box, they're not going to steal my will. The thing is, the guys who do that are going to empty the box, throw it in a suitcase, and run. They're not going to be hanging around there and going through documents, see what they want to keep and what they don't want to keep. They'll dump it in the suitcase, and they get ready to run. And they could take you. Well, that did happen to a couple of clients of ours. Fortunately, they were, you know, well enough they could re- just resign their wills, and it was no big problem. Uh, but one of the biggest problems we have with safe deposit boxes, and there's a lot of controversy on this, But most banks right now, if you have a safe deposit box, husband and wife, husband dies, the bank's going to seal the box and you're going to need a court order to get it open. And that's not that's not good. There's case law contrary to that. But banks, I don't know what their problem is, but a lot of banks will seal the box and wait for a court order. And, yeah, you could try to sue the bank to open it up. But in most cases, it's a lot easier to get the court order. Because they'll, you know, ordinarily issue that court order with without a lot of red tape. There is some, and you don't want to do it. So that's why a lot of people don't want to put their wills in safe deposit boxes. You keep it at home, it could get lost. Um, you know, you could have a fire in your house. If you lose a will, a copy, you can use a copy in certain circumstances. But if there's any dispute in the family, it's very, very hard to use a copy. And lose your original will, we got a problem. At the very least, we got a you know a major delay if you lose the original will. So don't lose it. But you keep it in the house, maybe something's going to happen. You know, like some people say, well, I've got this fireproof box or whatever. You may have a fireproof box, but if it's hot enough inside the house during the fire, it's going to melt what's inside the box. The box may still be there, but what's inside might be melted. Um so I just gave you now you could you could file the will in court. And I guess that's about the safest place you can file it. They'll do that for a nominal fee, about fifty dollars. The only problem with that is though, too, one, I've seen it where I know the will was filed, you go check with the court briefly, you know, just summer early, and they say it's no it's not there. 
And then you track it down. And you say, wait a minute, I know it was filed there. The clients filed it there. I have the receipt. And you double check it, and yeah, they can find it. So, and two, what if you move? Let's say you file your move, you will in Brooklyn, and then 10 years later, you move to Queens. And then you, you pass away, and your kids are looking for the will in Queens. Meanwhile, you moved out of Brooklyn, and who's going to know to go back to Brooklyn? Who's going to remember it? And, and and I'm not even talking about if you go to Florida, you go to Pennsylvania, you go to New Jersey. Uh, who's going to go back and look at it? But, I mean, I guess the courthouse is the safest place. Um, safe deposit box, again, if somebody dies, they seal the box. In your house, things can happen, especially when you die. If you live in an apartment building, forget it. Uh, you live in an apartment building, people go in and out after you die. I mean, the super, um, even, even when you pass away, if you pass away in the apartment, uh, you know, EMS workers go in, police officers, sometimes paramedics, neighbors sometimes come in, and people go in and out of your apartment. You never know what they're going to take or lose or whatever. And you might say, again, why? Well, they're not going to steal my will. Why are they going to steal my will? Well, one, you could have a nephew or niece who's not in your will who might steal it and throw it away. Um, two, again, we get the same thing. You got that tin box in your house and you got your will in the tin box. And then somebody thinks, well, maybe there's some jewelry there. So they grab that tin box in a hurry, throw it in their pillowcase or shopping bag and then leave. And they're not going to come back later and say, oh, I didn't want to steal your will. I just want to steal the jewelry it was in the tin box. So there, I hate to say it, there is almost no safe place. If you had to name a safe place, I would guess it would be the courthouse and keep it for safekeeping there. But at the same time, your relatives, whoever you're leaving in your will, have to know that your will is, let's say, with the Kings County Surrogates Court or the Queens County Surrogates Court. And if you move somewhere else, that somebody's going to look because there's not going to be computer searches on this kind of stuff as far as I know. It's just there, and somebody has to go there and try to find it. So I know that's a, believe me, I know it's a, a very poor answer because I really didn't give one. Now, at the same time, if your kids have a safe deposit box, you know, and you trust your kids, you might want to give your kids to hold the, the will for safekeeping, playing the odds that they're going to survive you, and they're not going to die before you. And if they do, yeah, we're going to need a court order to get inside the box, but that could be gotten. All right, I guess that's it for you today, Mel. Thank you for joining us. And, and tell the audience a little bit about your background. Where would you grow up? Where did you go to law school? <laughs> Thanks for having me, everyone. Um, so I've been a lawyer now for about 18 years, I think. <laughs> How many years? Uh, yeah, about 18 years now. How many? I don't look that old, I think. <laughs> 18 years now, I graduated 2005, passed the bar in the Philippines in 2006, uh, practiced a little around 10 years, moved here, then joined Connors and Sullivan. I'm on my eighth year right now. Um, so I grew up in the Philippines. I born and raised and then, um, you know, graduated law school in San Beda College or San Beda University right now. Um, at some point, the Philippines was a commonwealth, so like, there's that transition, easy transition as compared to the other countries, European and Japan, um, and uh, I moved my family here. How, how different is the law in the Philippines to, to let's say, New York? Not, not, not that different in, in the context of we both have civil and common law um, systems. So, like I said, I mean, at some point back in the day, 60s, 40s, the Philippines was a commonwealth of the United States, so... 
um, all the Supreme Court decisions were appealable to the United States Supreme Court here. In fact, trivia, there was, there was a time when July 4th was the Independence Day of the Philippines. And then they changed it back to June 18th when the original republic was proclaimed first. Okay. I thought, I thought it was given independence on July 4th, what, 1946? Or? That was... The American, so it was converted from Philippine Independence Day to the Filipino American Friendship Day, huh. and then we kind of like reverted to the June 18, 1898 proclamation of independence from Spain. Instead. Okay, trivia for yeah. the day. Well, we won't go into what happened after that, <laughs> <laughs> but again, thanks to everyone for having me here, it's always a pleasure, and uh, see you again. Okay, we're gonna take a break, we'll be back to wrap up the show. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for. Because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Now, just with my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Hey. Michael, we didn't get all the questions out today, so you got one more floating around? Yeah, this is another question that came by from one of our clients. My son is 18 years old. If I do a trust, can he be my trustee? And then can he also be my beneficiary? The answer to both questions is yes. But what I think we do have to question, is your son mature enough to be the trustee? Certainly he can be the beneficiary. And this is one of the things 
that's one of the tough questions when you start doing your estate planning. What age do my children take charge of my estate if something happens to me? And 18 in today's world is relatively young now. I mean, a lot of people, I think most people right now, are edging between 25 and 30. And I've heard some doctors say that maybe the brain becomes mature. And and this is not just, you know, an anecdotal, but that the brain becomes mature when a person reaches roughly the age of 27. So the question then becomes, you know, what age do you want your child to be in charge? Now, in some cases, there may not be anybody out there who can take charge, you know, because I assume there are no older brothers or sisters. The father is gone or the other parent is gone. So maybe there is nobody else. The grandparents are gone or whatever. But yes, an 18-year-old can be the beneficiary and the 18-year-old can be the trustee. But the question again becomes, is that an appropriate age? It's legally old enough. If you're 18, you can handle an estate. You can be an executor of an estate. You can be the trustee under a trust. You can be power of attorney. You can be the health care agent. You're old enough legally. to qu- You can vote, obviously. But the question is, are you mature enough to handle the job? Now, listen, I'm trying to think back. When I was 18, I, I think I could have handled it all right, and I would have been all right doing it. And I know when I was 21, that's when I was starting to pay off my student loans going through. I, I was fortunate enough to be in the military so that I was able to pay off my student loans while I was active duty because technically I didn't have to pay. I didn't have to pay interest, but I gradually paid them off out of my paycheck each month from the Army and cut my student loans down to where I eventually got them, you know, paid off. And then I was lucky enough after that to get into law school and the GI Bill paid for my law school tuition. So when I came out of law school, I didn't have a single dollars worth of debt as far as, you know, loans are concerned. So, but I think most people would agree most 18-year-olds are not mature enough to handle their own affairs. And, and, you know, God forbid they're left alone. Both parents are gone. I think that'd be a very tough situation to put an 18-year-old in. So I, I would look at somebody else to be the trustee. Now, if there's nobody else in the family, that might be the best choice because hopefully the 18-year-old will get the right advice. Because I'll tell you something, you don't ordinarily you don't want to have a bank in charge of an 18-year-old. They don't have enough discretion. You choose an attorney, we'll, yeah, we'll act as executives, trustees in some cases. Usually that's when the assets are going to charity um, because you want somebody to make sure that's got a license to, to make sure the charity gets every dollar and an attorney has a responsibility. Um, for family, but it, to have an attorney handle an estate, it usually costs more than having a family member be executor. So, uh, there's no one right answer to this, but yes, an 18 year old is old enough to handle an estate, to be the trustee, certainly can be a beneficiary. And I don't know why I get this question because I, I think it's almost self-evident, but yes, you can be the trustee and the beneficiary. You can have that conflict. Um, You know, attorneys can't have a conflict of interest ordinarily. But yes, people can put a conflict in. You can have your son as your power of attorney, your executor, your trustee. And yes, that may lead to some potential conflicts. But if you trust your son to handle things, 
then you can resolve that and you can make your your son your executor trustee beneficiary and of course one of the other things about estate planning we should also take a look at who's the alternate what happens god forbid if something happens to your son um michael there's another question about a uh somebody died together in a crash yeah this is another one that came by us my aunt and uncle died in a car crash together neither of them had a will what would happen now of course, here's the thing. You know, if they have children, obviously we go to their children. If they don't have children, we get a little complicated. And there'd be a question, did they die? I assume, by the way the question is phrased, they died within 120 hours of each other, which means half, assuming they had no will, half would go according to the husband's estate and half would go according to the wife's estate. Now, you may say it's your uncle and your aunt, but unless they're brother or sister, assuming they were married, one of them is not related to you. So let's say it's your your uncle is your father's brother or something. Uh, his half of the estate would go to his next of kin by law. His wife, who you may call your aunt, but technically is not your aunt under the law, her estate would go to her family, her next of kin by law. And, of course, that could cause a problem. I can tell you right now, if they both died in an accident together, they're personal injury lawyers who are going to be fighting over this case to get appointed executor to control, to try to control this estate and get the money from the lawsuit that's going to happen. So probably people are already fighting over it. But if assuming they died within 120 hours of each other, one did not survive the other. Half would go according to the husband's estate. If he has no will, it would go to his next akin by law. Again, assuming there are no children, grandchildren, it would go to the parents, the survivor of the parents, um, no parents alive, then brothers and sisters. If one of the brothers and sisters passes away, nephews and nieces. If there are no nephews and nieces, uh, to first to, uh, descendants of, your, of their grandparents, uncle, aunt, first cousin, first cousin once removed. If you do not have descendants of your grandparents alive, and in this case, if they died together, half of the estate would go to New York State, you know, because assuming the, the, the parents are gone, there are no brothers or sisters, there are no nephews and nieces, there are no cousins, first cousins once removed, um, the assets would pass to New York State, and that happens occasionally. When something like this happens, when a husband and wife die together in a car accident or in a plane crash, which doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And what's more likely to happen is husband dies of natural causes. Wife dies a few months later. She doesn't get her affairs in order. And then her assets pass to whoever her next of kin is. And if the fact pattern I gave, assuming her parents are gone, she has no brothers or sisters, no uncles or aunts. Um, no nephews and nieces, no first cousins, then the assets would go to New York State. And that's a sin, and that's why everybody should have a will. You know, sometimes people think I just say that, but everybody should have a will. And I know sometimes, you know, people write down things, you know, stupidly, let's say, well, you shouldn't have a will because if you have a will, it goes through probate. Not necessarily. You can have a will if no assets in your name alone when you pass away, that will does not go through probate. 
The will will only go through probate if it has to control assets. Now, in a lot of cases, there's going to be a leftover. There's going to be some furniture in the house. There may be a car. There may be a small checking account. So for most parts, there may be something going through the will. But hopefully not a lot of assets and not a lot, a lot of assets are tied up. But in this case, if you have a car accident, you have a lawsuit after you're gone. Well, those assets in your name alone pass according to your will. So just keep that in mind. All right. So I think that wraps up the questions for this week. Um, now, we're going to be people have been asking me because we just did a set of seminars uh, a couple of weeks ago, and people are asking me now when we're going to do our next set of seminars. Well, they're going to be in October. I'm not sure exactly of the exact dates, but they're going to be in October. And we'll announce the dates and the times and the places in a couple of weeks. And the idea behind the seminars, and again, if you, if you missed the last bunch, the idea behind the seminars is mostly is most questions focus on how do I get my house to my kids? How do I protect my house from nursing home bills? How do I not pay? How, how do I avoid paying taxes for my children after I'm gone? And that's what we talk about. And if you want to attend one of those seminars, again, we'll let you the times and places in a couple of weeks. Uh, we do not charge for the admission. We do like to know how many people are showing up so that we can appropriately have the venue, you know, properly placed and whatever. And occasionally, not too often, occasionally we do have to limit the number of people in there so that we do take, you know, attendance on those on those times when we have more um, attendees than we do have seats, which really does not happen often. But we like to know roughly how many people are going. Speaking of more attendees, you know, Michael, we your mother and I went to try to see what is it? Sound of Freedom. Sound of Freedom. That's right. Sound of Freedom, which we encourage you to see. Now, we were there, but the good news was that. It was sold out before we got there, which is is encouraging to see. Yeah. How Disney sat on that film for two years, I really don't know how that happened. Yeah. It's the old, is it malice or is it stupidity? Yeah. And I mean, when you think back to Walt Disney and Roy Disney and stuff like Roy Disney um, was, I think, the biggest contributor to the Catholic Church in America. And that was Walt Disney's nephew when he was when he was around and, and looked. Look what's happening to the organization now. It's yeah. horrible. But, I mean, those of you who get a chance, Sound of Freedom, it's it's really phenomenal. Um, you should go see it. It's uh, it, it feels almost as much a call to action as it does a film, but it's, it, I don't think it suffers for that. And it's really, you know, the fact that slavery is alive and well in the modern era. There are more slaves now than there were when slavery was, quote, unquote, legal by Western standards. Um, there are more slaves now than there were then, and child trafficking, child sex trafficking, it's horrible to even think about, is a serious, serious problem in today's world. So, um, yeah, if, if, you can, if you think you can stomach it, go support it. Certainly spread the word about it because, you know, the creators um, from Eduardo Verastegui to Jim Caviezel, everyone is really on a mission to do something about a great injustice that too few people talk about, quite frankly. Right. And, you know, like we we've met Jim Caviezel and, and Ordo Verstegi, you know, slightly. And I'll tell you, I think they're two genuine Christians and they don't just, you know, talk. They've lost a lot of money, each one of them, by following their principles. They could have get a, gotten better parts, better paying parts, especially Eduardo. 
But even Jim Caviezel, I understand he lost a lot of parts over the years. He's very fortunate to get Person of Interest, which was a hit, and God bless him for it. And I heard some people who used to work with him that, again, he he was He's the real gentleman. deal. He's, He's the, the real, real deal. deal. Yeah. And so I hope I hope the film does well, well, well. Um, and, you know, it's about time in this world we stood up for certain principles. You know, it's not all right to let pedophilia go. And, and remember what, what's it, Bugs? Bug Hall yeah. talked about that. Another, one of our past guests who was yeah. a child actor talking about just the horror in Hollywood. Right, how pedophilia runs the show. Yeah. All right, well, I guess we're running out of time for this week. See you next week, same times and stations. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Thanks so much for joining us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.